In this episode, we wait out there for part one of our conversation with Brad Hansen from Helena, Montana. Brad grew up in Utah and fell in love with the feeling of fighting big fish as a child fishing for lake rainbows with his cousins. He started fly fishing while attending college at Utah State and later moved to Montana and began guiding on the Missouri River. We discuss how to break down big water into digestible pieces, tactics for fishing the Missouri River, and Brad also tells several stories of how and why his perspective around guiding and fishing has changed over the years. Welcome to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Shemchuk. At Wade Out There, we believe fly fishing is special, but not elite, and that anyone can become a great fly fisher if they are willing to go, learn, and teach. Join me as I talk with other fly fishermen and women about their unique journeys into fly fishing, the rivers they fish, and the tactics and philosophies they practice. For those who can never leave the river in their hearts, this podcast is dedicated to helping you make the memories that keep us all coming back to wait out there. Welcome, Brad. Thanks for being on the Wait Out There podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here the, this morning. It's a pleasure to have you. I've talked to Chad Van Zatten and I've talked to Russ Beck. And both of those guys that I talked to, and even in the book that I read that they, they co-authored, there's all these references to Brad, Brad Hansen, our buddy <laughs> who's up in Montana that we go up and see from time to time. So from my perspective, you're somewhat of a mysterious kind of reference, a mysterious man who's living apart from us down here in Utah and uh, just honored to have you on the show and finally talk to you, man. Well, well thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be on the show and, uh, you know, probably about 50% of what Chad and Russ say is true. Yeah. <laughs> So we'll we'll see. The great guys, uh, some of my, you know, best friends, uh, you know, lifelong best friends, and uh, great fishing buddies. So I'm glad that I got in their books one way or the other, and so it'll be yeah, it'll be fun to talk today. I'm sure they'll come up. Yeah, I'm glad that we got the chance too. Lifelong friends. So you there in Utah. So you started out in Utah and we were talking before the show, you've been up in Montana now, what, 15 years? Yeah. Been up in Montana about 15 years, grew up in, uh, Roy, Utah. So for those listening, that's just West of Ogden, kind of towards the Great Salt Lake, uh, grew up there. My grandparents had a produce farm. So spent my summers from fourth grade on, you know, hauling three inch pipe and, you know, picking corn and, that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, when I was younger, we, <laughs> my parents, you know, they didn't do, I guess we could jump into the fishing part of this, Jason, if that's okay. Uh, but yeah, yeah. you know, our, our summers were pretty busy, uh, and it was good. Uh, you know, we learned and I've got, I should back up. I've got a, a younger brother and two younger sisters and we all worked on the farm and so did all my cousins. And so, Summers were good. We, we worked hard and we, you know, we came home tired. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of activity after, you know, after we went to the farm, but, you know, in the winter time, you know, our, I had a neighbor, one of our neighbors liked to ice fish. And, uh, I remember this is one of my first, you know, experiences fishing as a kid. I was probably, I don't know, nine or 10 years old. And the neighbor invited us all to go up to Causey Reservoir, which is up Ogden Canyon to go ice fishing. And 
we all piled into the old Ford Aerostar minivan and we drove up there and, and my dad has, has never really been a, a fisherman, but, uh, I remember we piled into the car, we drove up, caught up to Causey and it was early in the season and the lake was, uh, <laughs> it, it was frozen enough to be on there. But as you know, if you ice fish sometimes around the edges, it's a little slushy. And so guys will throw down particle board or two by fours to walk across. Well, that was the situation up there. And, uh, my mom was not impressed that we were going ice fishing. My youngest sister at the time, she's probably 18 months, two years old or something. And so we stop at the convenience store. Dad goes in to buy, you know, wax worms or miller worms. They're all sold out. So he buys, you know, these big, you know, jigs that, you know, and we don't have the little fly in the little uh, ice fishing poles. We've got our big old Zebco monsters that, you know, you could haul in a tuna with. And we go up and, you know, he's got the rusty ice auger and we all struggle across the ice. We cross the wooden, you know, the particle board to, you know, get to the ice so we don't fall through. Anyway, <laughs> I still remember this. You know, we were sitting out there on the ice. We didn't have the right gear. It's cold. It's windy. We're not catching anything because we don't have the right, the right, you know, bait. And my mom tells my dad she's done. She's going back. So she walks across and she's, she's the kind of person that, you know, she's not going to go back the way we, we came out. She's going to go straight shot back to the minivan to warm up. Just to show how, she, show how pissed she is. I'm that Yeah, mad. exactly. Yeah. And she walks straight towards the minivan, which is not the way that uh, the direction of the, you know, the boards. And I was following her. And I remember my mom stopping and saying, I don't know if I should go this way. And then falling in Wow. and, and going in. And I remember she chucked my little sister you know, like a football up onto the, she was pretty close to the side of the, to the, uh, you know, the side of the lake there. She threw my sister up, she hit the, you know, hit the snow and just kind of rolled down. And uh, my mom started splashing around and, you know, I grew up in a pretty devout Mormon family and my mom, you know, riddled off some, you know, some expletives that were pretty darn creative. And I remember seeing my dad trying to run across the ice in his, uh, in his big old, you know, insulated overalls, and he just couldn't get any speed. And uh, luckily, my mom, you know, she the place she fell in was probably just a little higher than her waist, so she wasn't going to drown. But boy, that was cold okay. water. I've been holding my on. breath, like waiting for this. Like, holy cow, man! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know, she all right. She fell through the ice, and she was splashing around, and uh, a couple of other guys ran over and they threw her rope and they pulled her out, and uh, she she was so mad that, you know, she didn't talk to my dad for about, you know, a week. And so that, that was kind of like the fishing experience of my youth, you know, when I was a little kid. Perfect. Uh, so that's the beginning yeah. of fly fishing for you is <laughs> ice fishing with the wrong bait and the wrong gear and your mom almost dying. How long before you are actually fly fishing from that point on? How old are you when that happened? Well, I was probably, yeah, not nine or 10 years old. All right. That's my son's age right now. So I, that's very familiar. And when did you get, I mean, you said your father was, was that the end of fishing for your dad? He might've become a, a fisherman if it wasn't for that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that could have been his uh, intro too. <laughs> yeah. And he, I think my dad shows up in in Chad and Russ's book, maybe the first book where we go up to Montana and my, my dad comes along, but no, he's never been much of a, of a fisherman. Uh, you know, I, I think he, it just wasn't his thing. And, and yeah, that kind of ended it for, you know, for us. 
the other, you know, the other memory I have as a kid, and this is a really good memory of fishing, we'd go down to Otter Creek Reservoir. It's kind of uh, southern Utah, central Utah. I don't know if you are familiar with that place, but Not that I had long, an uncle. No. I've only been here about three years. So uh, three years in August, I'll be uh, in Utah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So we'd go down and my uncle Jeff and Aunt Marcia, they lived in St. George and they'd bring up their, their camper and they had a little boat that uh, we would be able to fish on. And, and you know, Mormon families are oftentimes big families. And so, you know, you get my mom's side of the family together and there's 25, you know, kids and, you know, <laughs> grandma, grandpa and yeah, everybody. Yeah. And so we get down there and my parents, you know, we, uh, you know, we, we grew I grew up, you know, I, I would say kind of on the outskirts of the middle class. Like we, we always had what we needed, but we didn't always have what we wanted. Yeah. <laughs> type thing. I know. And uh, we had this we had this giant canvas uh, World War Two tent. It was an army surplus tent. We got it Smith and Edwards. And if, if you're from Utah, you know, Smith and Edwards is is kind of a store. God, I think the slogan is. We have everything you want if we can find it. I mean, it's just kind of a shit show in there, just stuff all <laughs> over the place. And uh, they had one of those World War II canvas tents. It was designed to, you know, you know, keep an American alive through a German winter. And that thing was was so heavy. It probably weighed 300 pounds, and it was so hot that the joke was that you didn't need to put on bug spray because it was so hot that mosquitoes would just die in the tent. And we'd, we'd pump up these air mattresses that were covered in duct tape, you know, to try to keep the air in them. And so you'd fall asleep on an air mattress and wake up on the ground in a pool of your own sweat. But the best, the best thing about that trip was the fishing. My, my uncle, he had this, this little boat. And uh, because there were so many kids, he'd take us out in shifts out on the reservoir. <laughs> Shift fish. work. How old are you yeah, at exactly. this point? So I'm probably, you know, about the same age, 10, 11 years old. And, okay. Uh, and I and I loved it. I got so excited. I had my own little Shakespeare spinning reel, and I'd bring it along. But we had his, you know, his gear that we'd use. He had pop gear that we could troll, and we'd catch these big four, five, six pound rainbows. And I remember watching them shoot out of the water like you know rocket ships. And I remember you know holding them in the in, in my hand and looking at the sun, uh, you know, in the water reflect off that stripe and just thinking, man, these are just the coolest things ever. And yeah, I mean, at a young age, I got kind of hooked on that feeling of fighting a fish. You, you know what I'm talking about? That feeling where the, you know, the next run might just pull you out of the boat. And I, I loved that, you know, there were so many kids and back then I think that everybody was just, I don't know, everyone was poor enough that we couldn't afford fishing licenses. So everyone was just kind of fishing off dad's license. So, you know, you needed to be a math major to figure out how many fish you could actually keep because we cooked them and ate them down there. And, you know, you might only get to reel in one or two fish, but uh, uncle Jeff had a way of making that a special occasion. And my dad would go out on the boat. And I remember on one of those trips, I had a big black eye. We had been jumping on the trampoline the night before and I had, you know, we had 15 cousins on there and you know how you jump and shoot one person up in the air. I do. Everybody jumps at the same time. Well, I was that person. I was coming down as somebody else was coming up and my eye hit their forehead. So I had a black eye and I think it was my left eye was completely closed shut. So I was fishing, 
with one eye. Well, when you got when you got you know fifteen kids on a trampoline in in the then it's hard. It's not easy. It's not hard to uh, imagine how that happens. Yeah, exactly. And uh, <laughs> we were out on the boat at Otter Creek, and my cousin, I think Anna, was putting on sunblock or something, and a big rainbow ate the lure, and the fly or the fishing pole went flying out of the boat. I had my little Shakespeare, and I had a Panther Martin on it, and I cast that sucker out, and ended up hooking the fishing pole and reeling it in, and on the end of her line was a big five pound rainbow or something like that so i was the hero of the trip and there's a picture somewhere in my mom's scrapbook of me holding up this giant rainbow with a giant bruiser of a black eye and so um that's the hero shot that should be the that should be the episode cover that'd be great so is it this fascination or is it this kind of early kind of introduction to these large rainbow trout that now you're on the missouri river which is you know, I mean, I know you fish a lot of other places up there, but you're guiding on the Missouri. Did, does that seem to appeal to you? The big fish, the fighting, the big fish. And I just hear about the Missouri being full of big fish. And so now I'm thinking, well, maybe that that's his thing. And Utah just wasn't cutting it that he had to get out to <laughs> Montana where everything's big sky country. Everything's bigger. Yeah, that's a fair question. There, there are on average bigger fish in the Missouri than in other rivers, even in Montana. I think the average size is somewhere between 17 and 18 inches and uh, it grows big fish, right? It, I mean, you talk to the biologists up here and the, the Missouri does grow big fish. Um, and why, the, why is that? Yeah. I mean, the, there's, there's a number of dams on the Missouri river. So the Missouri river starts at the confluence of the Jefferson river, the Madison um, and the Gallatin. And those three rivers form the Missouri and there's a series of dams that were built, um, you know, the late, the earliest being one, I think, was in 1914. So you, you've got consistent flows most of the year, right? And then you've got a tailwater environment where those temperatures are just ideal for insect growth and, uh, you know, fish fish growth. So, you know, the I think I remember a fish, wildlife, and parks biologists saying that the fish grow faster in the Missouri than they do in the hatcheries, just because of the number, the amount of biomass in the river. So it it grows big fish. Uh, That being said, you know, it also gets fished hard. So it's one of the, you know, busiest rivers in the state. And uh, I mean, they they uh, all get fished hard these days up there, right? I mean, the Bighorn, the Madison, the Missouri... Even like the gal, I mean, the Gallatin now is ridiculous. I mean, uh, I don't know. My dad, when I told you before the show, my dad used to go out there or he, he moved out there when he was like 20. So this is in the seventies and he used to go out there with a six pack of beer. He wasn't fly fishing, but he would bring, you know, his, his fishing pole and he wouldn't see one person all day on a Saturday and he would just catch fish all day on the Gallatin. But <laughs> I just think about that, like, you know, there's no, those places are getting few and far between. But anyway, I mean, yeah, they just seem like they're all getting fished hard out there. But Missouri, I can, big fish and great, I mean, it's beautiful and I understand why people go. Yeah, it is a beautiful river. I, and uh, I, I'm excited to share a few stories of, uh, you know, guiding on, on the river and uh, it, yeah, every river you fish has a personality, right? And those, it, it, they have moods and, 
you know, depending on what day of the year it is and you know what's going on on that river, she, you know, we joke some days it's the Missouri, some, some days it's the misery. And, you know, I've had my ass kicked <laughs> a number of times there. And, uh, as soon as you think you've got her figured out, she'll humble you, uh, and remind you that even though we have all this fancy equipment and, you know, we can go float down at her weight or whatever we're going to do, the, the, the fish <laughs> are, are the other half of the equation. And if they don't want to play, they just don't want to play. Yeah. Is that something, or is there something else that you would think that when people come up there to fish the Missouri for the first time that they might be surprised by, or it might kind of, they weren't expecting? Yeah, I think that people assume that, you know, a a lot of people who've never fished the river before assume they're going to show up and they're going to catch 50 fish, right? And depending on your skill level, a good day may be seven or eight fish to net. Um, you, You may feed by feed like the fish eats the fly. You may feed, you know, a dozen fish, but you, you may not get them into, uh, in, into the hand. And that's, that's the thing that I think a lot of people don't think about. Um, is when that, do you find, yeah, go ahead. Is that, um, something that you find somewhat unique to the Missouri or the misery, as he said, I mean, is it, is it, I mean, cause that sounds like day in the life of Jason Shumchuk. I mean, that's just <laughs> par for the course for me. I'm always like fish fighting or hook setting. I mean, do you think that it is uh, the fish fighting that are more uh, of the issue? Like they just fight harder or they're craftier or they're getting into boulders underneath or is it more like hook setting, not good hook sets? Or why do you, why do you say that as a unique part of the Missouri? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the answer is, is, uh, twofold. Yeah. It, big fish and light tippet, right? So if you're going to, you know, th- throw, you know, a size 18 or a size 20 dry fly and hook a 20 inch fish that, that is just fired up, the likelihood of you landing that fish is pretty low. It happens, but that's part of the reason why the Missouri river attracts anglers from across the world is they're looking for that challenge. Uh, they're looking for the opportunity to try to fool a very big fish on a small fly with, you know, with the nymphing side of it, you can get away with some, some bigger flies, but most of the year we're fishing size 16 and size 18, uh, you know, flies, zebra midges, sow bugs, um, you know, techie, little, uh, you know, pheasant tail looking stuff where, you know, there's not much purchase on that hook. So uh, a big fish, if it does, you know, what it's supposed to do and run and jump and, and everything else, there's there's a good, op- you know, a good chance that you're not going to land that fish. You may see it jump out of the water a couple of times, but <laughs> getting it into into the net is is a different story. That can be frustrating to people, but at the same time, if you you come to the river with the right attitude, with the, with the idea that, I'm here to learn. I'm going to lose a lot of fish. I might get a few really good ones into the net and, uh, I'm going to have a good time. It makes for a great day. If you'd come to the river thinking you're going to catch 50 fish on your first day, you'll, you'll go away disappointed. Expectation management. Uh, it, it seems like it's always coming up in this game of fly fishing. You mentioned one of my favorite flies, the techie looking little pheasant tail stuff. That is <laughs> one of my favorite <laughs> technical terms for one of my favorite flies. Um, so 
is it because you have to, I mean, if you're out there guiding, do you, do you need the lighter tippet? I mean, why not just use a bigger rope? I mean, why I hear that a lot on the Madison, bring the right rope to the party, you know, like get bigger on that. And it's something that I've done a little bit around here. Um, because the Weber river that I fish is, I don't know, there's just a lot of debris, trees, rocks, things like that. And there's a lot of moss too. Uh, the bottom of the river gets a little grassy. And I find that when I'm fighting these big browns, I mean, I just, if I don't have that leverage in my, in my toolkit that I, I just feel so help, I and it just doesn't work for me. So is it something that you're always kind of going back and forth with the, the size of the tippet or do you kind of, nope, this is what we use every time. Or what do you recommend for I guess, rig setup, different times of year, maybe different. You can maybe cover that. Sure. Yeah. You know, uh, every river is different. You can get away with, uh, stronger tippet and, you know, leaders on some rivers than on others. I would say as a general rule, if you're fishing a tailwater, meaning the water's, you know, the river's yeah. coming out of a dam that it's going to be clear. That's the a fish good point. are going to be able to yeah. see, uh, those flies. They have time to think about what they're doing whether they want to eat that or not. And, uh, generally if you're, if you're using big tippet, uh, you're going to have a harder time catching fish on a freestone river, right? Where the water's churning and you've got boulders and riffles and runs. Those fish are usually not as picky. You can get away with some heavier tippet. I mean, my rule is always use the strongest tippet that you can get away with. And if you go through a run and nothing's happening, there are three things that are wrong you're either at the wrong depth and that's usually number one. Uh, the, the number one problem is you're at the wrong depth. If you, if you switch up your depth and you're still not getting them, it could be the fly. And if you switch up the fly a few times, you probably need to go a lighter tippet. And, uh, and if you try all three of those, it, you might just suck as a fly fisherman or <laughs> the, fish, the fish just aren't eating. Right? There is I mean, that. There is that too, Brad. This could yeah, be a but, this could be a Jason problem. It's not a depth or a fly or tibet problem. There's a sticker that's on a lot of guide uh, guide coolers, and it says, uh, "It's not the fly; it's you." And uh, you know, every once in a while, you do have to you know you do have to look at that. I mean, if you can't get a good drift, if you can't put a cast out there. Uh, you know, these fish, they see a lot of flies, right? They see a lot of boats. They see a lot of anglers and, you know, they're not going to chase a, uh, you know, a zebra midge that's, you know, not drifting the right way. And they're definitely not going to come up and eat a dry fly that, uh, (laughs) looks, looks like it doesn't belong. Right. Um, sure. So anyway, yeah, it's all part of the fun. What's your, yeah. Let me ask you, what's the, what's your top uh, so if you're, what's the top and what's the bottom? Like, so how, what size would you start with and how, how small would you go? If you're in that uh, scenario, you're in a run and you're like, ah, eh, no, I'm pretty sure this is the right fly and I'm good. Yeah. So on the Missouri, right. You're fishing depths anywhere from, you know, nine, 10 feet deep or, or deeper to, um, what we call short leash nymphing where you're maybe fishing along the bank, maybe just a foot or two in depth. And so, that really uh, factors into what flies you're using. If you're going to fish deep, you want you want something heavy up top. You may have to use a little split shot. And uh, and then usually I'll have the bigger fly as the top fly and then the bottom fly as, as the smaller fly that they usually end up eating, the, you know, the smaller fly. 
That being said, you know, there's a time of the year, July, August, where we fish big kind of nasty looking, um, you know, streamer type stuff underneath an indicator. You know, we'll fish, uh, you know, basically like a woolly bugger. And then, you know, beneath that, you can fish, uh, you know, a little pheasant tail pattern, a, um, a two bit hooker. That's a big popular fly or a green machine or, you know, something like that. And, uh, those fish, if they're in the right mood, they'll eat that bigger stuff, which, which is a lot of fun. If they're going to eat the bigger stuff, there's a bigger hook and you you end up getting those fish in. Okay. What about the size of the tippet though? The, what's the size tippet, you, you know, that you would start out with and then go down from? Yeah. So really I fish, you know, if I fish three X to four X and if, and if you can't get them on 4X, you go 4X to 5X. If you can't get them on 5X, you go 5X to 6X. If you can't get them on 6X, you're not going to get them. <laughs> okay. So 6S, 3X is where we're starting. And 6X yeah. is the very, the smallest you would ever go. Okay. Is that yeah. different between nymphing and dry flies or just kind of the same? Yeah. You know, I rarely will go a 6X on a nymph. You're just going to break off. Okay. Right? And that, that's just what's going to happen. So I do fish a lot of 4X and 5X on, on my nymph rigs when I'm fishing. Do you, are you using nylon when you're dry fly fishing tippet or do you, do you use, because I would imagine you've got rigs set up for nymphing and rigs set up for dry fly fishing and you're in the boat most of the time. So you can switch back and forth, but I mean, would you recommend, do you care or do you pay attention to that much nylon versus fluoro for the tippet section or? Or for your rig, you know, I like uh, I like the uh, fluorocarbon stuff. Uh, it, it seems to hold up a little better, you know. But there are guys out there that just use the regular nylon, you know, monofilament. Everybody has their, you know, their. If, if they fish Orvis, they like Orvis. If they fish scientific <laughs> anglers, they fish that. If they fish tr- trout hunter, what uh, you know, there's different ones. And, and usually, what it comes down to is. Whichever shop the guide has a pro deal with is the tippet that he uses. That's <laughs> the best <laughs> one out there. Well, that's a that's an honest answer, and honesty is always appreciated here at Wait Out There at the Wait Out There podcast. <laughs> um, that makes a lot of sense, and I, you know, I hear a lot of experienced guides talk too, and you know, the the places that technology has come with gear and lines and rods and reels and all that is so advanced compared to what they had 30 years ago that even a less high quote high quality thing today is still better than what they used to have before now i guess there's increased pressure so maybe there's a a trade-off there that but i still think that a lot of it's pretty pretty darn good and we're kind of splitting hairs here at at some point with with that i mean (laughs) If it's your livelihood and it's your job, I can understand, you know, like you need to be in the weeds on some of this stuff maybe, but I think a lot of it's pretty good. Do you, will you, will you run fluoro with dry flies too on the tippet? I will. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That, that's pretty common. And, and, you know, I like to throw up here, you know, kind of the minimum is a, is a nine foot uh, tapered leader, right? You, You, you need to be able to have some clear line before that floating line gets anywhere near, near these fish. So that, that's, that's pretty common to see a nine foot four X or five X and then another 20 plus inches of tippet tied onto the end of that leader. So you're making big long casts 
the nice thing about the Missouri River is it's big and it's wide and it's it's you know even if you're casting near the bank you've got a back cast so it you're able to really get the line out there uh, to to the to the fish and if you're fishing from a drift boat which is what most people do you have the opportunity to really open up that fly rod and see what it can do uh, you know a lot of the streams I grew up fishing in northern Utah right you just you couldn't cast anyway. You'd be end up, you'd end up hooking, you know, whatever was above you or behind you. And you know, one of the things that I learned as a, you know, when I started fly fishing when I was younger, is and I was poor, right? So I didn't have any money when I was a kid or in college. So you, you had to think about every cast because if you lost your fly, the day was over. <laughs> and so. <laughs> I yeah. used to carry around at one of those little folding saws, you know, with the like little hex nut thing. And, you know, if I had four flies and I was down to the last one and I got it stuck in the tree, that, that tree was coming down. <laughs> I cut down a lot of trees and it, it wasn't a good thing, but right. I remember spending a half an hour to cut down a tree to get my fly back, <laughs> you know, and, and now, now thankfully I, I don't have to do that. But that's you funny. Know, one, one of the things you learn as a new angler if you don't have, uh, you know, a lot of money to buy new flies is you got to watch what you're doing. And that, that is a good rule of thumb anywhere. Uh, when you're fishing, look behind you, see what's behind you, see what's around you. And if you start to slow down, you'll, you'll make, uh, you'll make a good cast. The rule on the Missouri when you're fishing is, uh, the first cast is the most important. That first drift over those fish, if you're, especially if you're fishing dries, that's the most important. That first drift through when you're nymphing, that's the most important. If you can get a first cast where you want it, you'll, you'll hook more fish. Yeah. That reminds me of a story my friend told me. I used to fly A-10s with him, and he's from Montana. He grew up in Billings, I think, or outside Billings area. He used to fish uh-huh. the Bighorn. or he's, Yeah, and when he was a kid, similar situation no money for flies or whatever. So he, he used to just go down the banks uh, like <laughs> of the busy yeah. holes and just pluck out oh, flies. Man. And I mean, he's like, I'll tell you what, Shady, I had full fly box. I mean, he was, he was get tons of flies that way from just getting them out of the grass there along the bighorn. And, uh, uh I still, I, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I still have some, some like garden pruners in my drift boat. If I go by and see a nice streamer or dry flies hanging off of a limb, I'll roll my ass over there and clip that branch off. I just never outgrew that. Yeah. Some things never die. Right. So those are, those are qualities and personality traits that, that serve us well sometimes, and maybe sometimes not as well, but, uh, I think that's great. That's funny. Uh, yeah, he, he's a guy I had on the show a while ago too. We'll maybe link to that, but he's a, he's a great guy. Uh, all right. You, you know, the, the other thing I'll say, Jason is, you know, a mentor friend of mine who, uh, teaches fly fishing schools here in Montana, his name is Jim Stein. You know, one of the things that he teaches his students when they're taking the intro to fly fishing one one class is that 90% of the fish live in 10% of the water. So you can stand out there and fish that 90% of the water all day long. You're not going to catch anything. You got to learn how to read the water. And, you know, one of the, one of the best ways to fish the Missouri is from a drift boat, but the best way to learn the Missouri is by waiting it. 
Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about breaking down the big water and how do we, how do we fish the Missouri? How do we find that 10%? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think, so backing up just a little bit, you know, when I was in college, I uh, was trying to learn to fly fish and I was terrible at it. This I is in Utah? Out. Yeah, this was in Utah, up, up at Utah State University. Logan. Logan, okay. Yep, and I would go out and I would struggle and struggle and struggle and I would not catch any fish. And, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I was, you know, when I first got a fly rod, I tied the tippet onto the welded loop of the floating line and tried to cast it. I didn't know about tapered leaders. I didn't know about any of that stuff. And as I watched YouTube videos and I'd go in and bug the guys at the fly shop, I started to put the pieces together. Uh, then I met a guy uh, who taught me how to Euro nymph. His name was Gilbert. Uh, and he took me out and we went fishing and he was into that eye sticking Euro nymphing technique. And, you know, I don't do that as much anymore because I like to cast and you don't really Euro, you don't really cast a lot in Euro nymphing, but Euro well, nymphing. Yeah, is, that's my thing too. It's, it's hard. I mean, it, I think that I know that you can, but it's not the same. I, I don't know. I'm not doing it right or something, but it's just very weird to me. And, um, I know that it's effective and I've, I've fished it and I've been out in like Pennsylvania and I, I mean, I, I know it's effective and great and I have caught fish that way. I just haven't okay. set up my rig enough to where I can really feel, really feel it. And maybe it's cause I'm fishing, maybe a four weight's too much. Maybe I need to try that on a two weight or something. And, but I, I just have a hard time with the casting, man. I, could be just bad casting. <laughs> well, you know, there, there's a little technique to it. Uh, and, you know, we I'm happy to talk about Euro nymphing. I don't do it as much anymore, but I, I had a period of time there when that was all I was doing. And uh, what it forces you to do is wade through a river, right? I mean, this podcast, Wade Out There, is a great, great example of that. If you're always fishing from the bank or floating, you never actually get to feel where those uh, buckets are, where those riffles and runs are, where the riverbank drops off, how deep it is. Sometimes you learn that the hard way by filling your waders. But what happens in your mind is you make a mental image of there's the shelf. And if the water, you know, is running at this CFS, there's going to be, you know, five feet of a shelf or three feet of a shelf. And, you know, you kind of learn that by falling into the river. And with your own you got to be close to where you're fishing. And the other beauty, beauty about Euro nymphing is you're always connected to the flies. So you can, you know, just by moving your arm up or down, you're changing the depth of where those flies are. And so you learn, you learn the depth, the contours, the structure of the river uh, by actually walking through it. And uh, that's what, you know, that's what I do when I'm trying to learn the river. So I'll just wait it until I kind of get the sense of it. And then once that's in your mind, you can put a drift boat wherever you want, and you know where everything is and you don't have to get wet <laughs> anymore. Right. <laughs> but it's, but it's the same idea. If you just attack a river from, you know, from a boat, uh, you, you can still catch fish, but you don't catch as many and you don't have that intimate understanding of, you know, where, where places are. And there, you know, there are spots on the Missouri, for example, that, that I know of that, you know, I, I'm kind of the only guy that fishes it, even though there might be a hundred boats that go down that day. They just don't know where that one bucket is at. And there's always a fish there. 
You know, I joke around with clients so like, hey, I pay this fish. You know, he's always there. We got an agreement. <laughs> like, you know, those, those can be those can be day, you know, day savers. Right. And it also gains you a lot of confidence with your client. that Like this guy does know what he's talking about. He does know the river. Uh, and if, and, you know, aside from guiding, if you're just trying to have, you know, some spots, like if you've only got a half an hour to fish and you want to go up and catch a fish, you know, you, you have a couple of spots in your back pocket. You can pull out and go, you know, go catch a fish there. Oh, I think that's a great point. I think, uh, a lot of people starting out, especially aren't in drift boats. And so they're, they're learning and managing rivers, waiting, uh, do you think that that's a good approach to Missouri though? I mean, it's such a big river, but before I ask you that though, let me ask you with the Euro nymphing in depth, you mentioned depth is one of the problems that you might be facing in any river really, but on the Missouri specifically, how do you solve for that? I mean, if you're not Euro nymphing, are you adjusting quite often? And is it just a matter of not being in that buffer on the bottom? Is it always just, we need to get lower or how, how often is it? We need to be mid column. We need to be top third. Like how often are you fishing emergers and different, you know, stages of rising and things like that? What, how, how do you think about depth on the Missouri? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question too. Uh, you know, the general rule is fish are usually looking up. So if you're too deep, right, if you're dragging on the bottom, uh, you may catch some white fish, but you know, you're not really going to get those browns and rainbows that you're after. If you're too high up, uh, the fish may not want to move that far in the water column to come up and eat a fly. So it is a little bit of trial and error. And the difference between a successful day on the river and an unsuccessful day is the number of times that you change depth, right? So if you, if you fish a really pretty stretch of water and it looks fishy there's there are fish in there if you fish it and you don't catch anything change the depth go deeper um you should be ticking bottom every once in a while in my opinion and uh at some point in the morning or in the afternoon whenever you're out there you're going to find that depth and you're going to get into them and uh it's just a process of kind of trial and error you know if one of the mistakes that I used to make was assuming that the fish, you know, that the trout was going to, you know, do most of the work. And in some rivers, right? Like, you know, if you fish a freestone where there's a bunch of cutthroat, that cutthroat might swim across all the way from the left bank to the right bank to eat, you know, the purple haze you just threw. But on the Missouri, right, there's so much food, they don't need to move around a lot. They don't have to race across the river to eat that bug. So you kind of have to put the food right in front of the fish, right at that depth that he wants it, you know, and at the speed that he wants it. And that just takes a little bit of uh, trial and error. When Chad and Russ come up and fish with me, you know, they, <laughs> I kind of have it already figured out. So we just have the rig set up, but every once in a while we'll go fishing and, it won't be the depth that I have it set at and we'll, we'll switch it up. We'll go a little shorter. We'll go a little longer until we, until we figure it out. Uh, but yeah, that's part of the, the challenge and the fun of fishing, right? I mean, it's, it's part of what, what we do as anglers. 
I love that you said the difference between a successful and unsuccessful day is the amount of times that you change your depth. And it's <laughs> the depth is something that has really, and, and not that has really changed my game in fly fishing that and like a, a militant, almost like focus on presentation, <laughs> like just like a crazy, like really Jason, it has to be a great, presentation it has to be good it can't be just a little good and if there's drag you know especially after i see you guys that are doing euro nymphing and they're worried about micro drag and all this stuff and the guides and stuff i'm like i really have to be on my game if i'm not doing that especially nymphing so those things have helped me a lot and and also something that's helped me and i wonder if if it's like this on the missouri with with hatches is the rising flies coming up through the water column or doing a dry dropper type thing where you're trying to target fish in the water column that aren't necessarily on the top exactly where you see them. And they're not exactly, you know, along the bottom. I know like not right on the bottom, but like seems to me there's this middle area that sometimes gets left out. Is that something that you see? Yeah, I think that's a fair, a fair observation you know, everybody wants to catch a fish on top, but sometimes those fish, there's so much going on subsurface with those, you know, those little, uh, nymphs coming up to, uh, you know, do their thing and, and, uh, fly around and mate and have, you know, do their thing that we forget about the opportunity to fish, you know, an emerger or a dropper. I fish dry dropper all the time. That's probably my favorite rig because I like, you know, most of the time, you know, you will catch a fish on the dry, but some days they're, they're just not going for the dry and you're going to get them on the dropper. I remember, I remember this couple, uh, I took out and, you know, we usually fish once a year and, uh, the, the woman is the better angler because she's patient. She has a damn nice reach cast and her husband's a, li- a little bit more of a, he's very competitive and he likes to cast, you know, a country mile, which you don't need to do, right? You need to get the line out there, but if you have too much line out, you can't, you can't mend it. You can't control okay. it. Even on the Missouri that this is true, you say, right? So why yeah. is that? And wh- why do people keep making this mistake? And, and why, what's far enough? And why do you say that? Because to me, I see a tendency among me and my friends when we go fishing that you get on bigger water and we're talking about bigger water, right? And you just feel yeah. like you got to go further. And I've just had more luck when I don't do that, but I'm, I'm interested to hear your opinion. No, no, make, make the shortest cast to the closest fish, fish first, right? Make the shortest cast possible. Uh, you'll be able to control the line better. You'll be able to hook, you know, get the line off the water to set better. But what happens is guys who have, you know, fancy fly rods and, consider themselves excellent casters. They want to cast to the fish that's, you know, three miles down the river and they put out all this line and they can't control it. Right? So uh, I love guiding couples because the, the women uh, always outfish the men. And, and it's really <laughs> I hear that to, all the time. I love it. It's really fun to watch how their husbands or their partners uh, react. And, and this particular couple, right? So he, he makes his wife sit in the back of the boat which is kind of an asshole thing to do in my opinion. But <laughs> from the back of the boat, she still just kicks his ass. And 
what will happen is we'll go down and we'll post up on some fish and she'll hook a couple and then she'll just sit down and quietly take out a book and start reading while he struggles for the next half an hour to feed, you know, a, a 12 inch brown trout on a, you know, on a parachute atoms. And, <laughs> and then she won't fish again until he has his confidence restored and he can kind of like, you know, say, well, I caught one. And then she'll come back and she'll catch two 20 inch Browns on, you know, on a rusty spinner and he'll get pissed off. And, and so I've talked to him before and I, and I will say in the nicest way, you know, it, it's, it's not this hard, you, you know, you don't have to cast that far. It's just a short reach cast. It's all about the drift. And there are some people that just, you know, can't be guided. Right. Um, or, or you'll get the, or you'll get the person that what we call guides the guide and they'll be like, Oh, well, you see those fish over there. Like we, we should go get those. And, Oh, you know, we should probably be fishing the riprap bank over here. And you're like, all right, you want to pay me 600 bucks to tell me where to go? <laughs> okay, I'll just row you wherever you want to go. Uh, but but, but yeah. women in general, they show up and they're like, hey, what should I do? Tell me where to cast, what flies to use, and we're going to have a great day. And they do, and they catch big fish. And I've got, I've got some pictures that I'd love to share, you know, of you know, 25, 26-inch brown trout caught by, you know, intermediate to, you know, beginner to intermediate women who – just are patient. They they breathe when they cast, and they are not trying to prove anything. They have no ego, right? Uh, that that the other phrase we use often is buffing the truck. Like you'll get guys in the boat who you're just going to buff the truck all day. You're just going to tell them how great they are, and you're going to look at the pictures of the you know the tarpon and the bonefish they caught. And the thing is with these guys, and a lot of them are corporate trips, right? And you know the thing with these guys is that. They've never actually fished. They've never done what we've done where you go out in a river and get your ass handed to you day after day after day until something finally clicks. They always yeah. show up and they get the skip. And until you get that one nugget and you're like, oh, yeah, right. okay. They, they skip I get all that. the work and go straight to uh, straight to catching. And, and when we get through the um, you know conversation a little bit more and I get to talk about philosophy it's one of the critiques I have about guiding in general is we've made it too easy to catch fish you know we've made it too easy for people to enjoy this hobby uh, and I don't call fly fishing a sport because if you've had some of the people I've had in my boat I mean they can barely get in I mean this is not a sport we we, we take the athleticism we take the the um, the you know, the difficulty as guides, we've become so good at catching fish that, you know, you can be basically a human blob. And if you can lob uh, an indicator or a bobber off the side of the boat, I can put the boat exactly where it needs to be so you can hook a fish. And I just, as I get older, I don't know how I feel about that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about that because I've had people on the show I mean, I think I had Mac Brown on the show and he specifically said people fishing the Missouri River, lobbing bobbers, is that fly fishing, right? And and now I'm hearing you're saying it and you're on the Missouri River and he's talking about the same thing. And I mean, I, he's not, I don't think, you know, I, it's meant in good spirits, I think, but I think he's, what he was getting at and what sounds like what you're getting at is just this concept of, you know, watering it down to this I'm just going to lob in your words, lob it out there and then we're going to catch fish. And 
I guess I'll use that. And I love the story about the the couple. So it sounds like this is a couple. That, is this a repeat customers? They come out more. Oh, than... I, yeah, I've been guiding them for okay. 10 years. So this is, always happens every time. Every year. Every year. <laughs> I love it. That's even that's even better, Brad. That's even better. So I would say that on the Missouri, if you can, um, well. You know, if, if you're if you're nymphing, we do a lot of long line nymphing, so it's a it's a fair critique, right? We're throwing a bobber, small indicator, and beneath that we've got a five seven feet a leader and some tippet and flies. If and those those are not easy to cast. You have to have some skill to cast them at a distance. Uh, the dry fly fishing, it's an easier cast, but it's it's very important. I mean, every, you hear the word reach cast a lot, and that is not that is not. Uh, by accident, being able to cast a line out and have that floating line upstream of the fly. So the first thing that floats over those noses is, is the fly and not your floating line. The, the other thing that a lot of people do is as soon as they see that the fish doesn't eat the fly, they want to pick that line up. Well, that's going to put that pod down immediately. You let that fly float all the way through the pod until it's straight down river of you. And then you strip it back in. Even if there's drag on your drift there? I mean, because that seems to be... Exactly. Yeah, you're, you're, you're going to have a less, a less risk of putting that pod, uh, pod down, even if there's some drag, than trying to rip it off the water while the, while the fly is in the middle of the Even just the to pod. mend, even just to mend that, you'd rather just fish it. And then yep, I guess exactly. you could feed line. I mean, how, how are you feeding line a lot if you get in that situation? Let's say you, you cast, you're trying to reach cast, you do an okay job. Maybe you're trying to get 20 feet out of that drift and you're getting like 12 feet or something just because of skill level. You want to mend, uh, but you, if you mend, you're going to you know, blow up that pod like you said. And then so is feeding line, will that help? Because now at least you're not dragging it through. Yeah, that's that's pretty common. So one of the things I'll have someone do if if I've got the drift boat stopped and, you know, let's say we've got a pot of fish 30 feet, 40 feet downriver of us, um, I will have them strip off all of the floating line to backing and have that sit, you know, in the bow essentially of the drift boat, right? So then they're going to cast and then they're going to feed line through the guides Right. You never want to put the fly right down on top of the fish. You want to put it a few feet in front of them and then start feeding line. Or if you can't make a good enough cast, put it 15 feet in front of them and then feed line until that drift gets over top of them. One of the biggest mistakes we make as dry fly fishermen is trying to put the fly right on top of the fish because it, it scares them. If somebody you know slapped something down right on your head, <laughs> it, would, it would probably scare you too. And that's that's something that we often do wrong when we're fishing dry flies. Um, and like you said, presentation is key. You know, uh, there is a time of the year when, when I skate caddis on the Missouri and that's when you just get to be a terrible dry fly fisherman on purpose. You just <laughs> chuck that big caddis out there and you try to skate it back to you. And, uh, but, but that's the exception to the rule, uh, you know, on, on the, on the mow anyway. Well, if you're fishing small flies most of the time, are you fishing, but you're, but you've got big fish out there, nine foot, six weight, nine foot, five weight. I mean, what's, what's, if you could only bring one rod out there, what would you have? Yeah. I would say the most common, uh, 
weight is a five weight, nine foot five weight. And, uh, th- is there, that because the flies are small? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, there are guys that'll bring out a three weight or a four weight and they'll hook fish with them, but it's a little, there, there's a little ethic to being able to bring in a fish in an appropriate amount of time. And it, you can hook a fish on a three weight, but you're going to have to let that fish almost fight to exhaustion before you bring it in, or you're going to break your three weight, right? Uh, with a five or yeah. a six weight, you can cast a dry fly. You can have a nice fight. Uh, that rod should be just, you know, j- powerful enough to get the line out there, powerful enough to land that fish in a way that the fish isn't fighting to exhaustion. And, and so, okay. yeah, you know, when guys are streamer fishing, they prefer six weights just to huck that, you know, heavier yeah. fly out there a little bit. Um, you know, I fished with a guy a couple of years ago. He was a, he was an interesting guy and he fished bamboo and, you know, he caught some fish on bamboo, but man, we, and I was out of the boat walking down river, you know, hundred yards to land that fish because he couldn't, he just couldn't physically bring it in. So if somebody wants to fish a lightweight rod, uh, I, I generally discourage them from doing that. Okay. That sounds reasonable. Do you have a, um, you said when you moved up there to the Missouri or to that area, you kind of had some days or some times when you got your ass handed to you. Was there a, a fish or a, a moment or a, a, a day that stands out in your brain where you specifically learned something the hard way or one that got away or, or one that you caught, a fish that you caught that stands out in your memory? Yeah. You know, I was uh, one of the first, well, it was the first year I was up here. I went out to the river and I, I looked at it and it's big and wide. I mean, it's, it's, it's big. I mean, you can't, you'd be hard pressed to be able to swim across it in, in places, you know, without getting too tired. And I thought, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I just went out and I started fishing and I didn't catch anything. I went up to, uh, the, the dam where the river kind of starts, or at least the blue ribbon section It's called Holter Dam. And I was fishing and I was struggling. And, uh, this guy showed up in a old beat up truck, walked down, rigged up a fly rod, and he just started hooking fish one after another, after another. And, you know, you can be a good sport about it, but after a while you start to feel pretty bad. You're like, man, I am this bad at this, you know, that, you know, what's going on? What am I even doing here? I, 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 I have those days like, dude, you have a fly fishing podcast. You're out here talking to people. People think you're a fly fisherman, dude. You can't even catch a fish. What are you doing? Like you're an imposter. Stop it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I felt that. I had all those feelings of sadness all the way up to anger. Like I wanted to go and drown the guy. <laughs> so I walked over and I said, Hey, you're just having a great day. You, you know, I, I'm not asking you to tell me what fly you're using, but could you just, you know, give me a few pointers. And he was the nicest guy. He, he took me aside and, um, we sat down and, you know, he had two beers in his, um, you know, his, sling pack he's like you want a beer i'm like hell yeah so we sit down on a rock <laughs> drinking beer this guy's together. awesome i love this guy yeah and you know this this guy as we sat there and, and and talked to each other he he his hands were just shaking you know and and i said are you okay he's like you know i've got uh he, he said i've got this and i i, I want to say it was like um it i can't remember the neurological disease where you just shake but he Parkinson's. had that Parkinson's. Thank you. He had Parkinson's and he's like, yeah, he's like, they, I've got a year or two left that I'll be able to actually stand up. And he said, 
you know, I come out here and I stand in this river because I know that my time, I get a little ch- choked up just thinking about it. My time being able to do this is limited. And he said, every time I get to cast, every time that I hear that zing of the line going through the guides, that could be the last. He said, I wake up, I may wake up tomorrow and not be able to use my legs. And we sat there and I thought to myself, well, you know, everything I thought mattered the last hour didn't anymore. And all I wanted to do is just sit with, sit with this guy. And he, you know, he showed me how he did his nymph rig and how the tapered leader went down to the tippet. And that's where, where you tie on the tippet, that's where you put your split shot. And then you put 18 inches to your first fly, which he was using a, you know, a, uh, what was he using? Some kind of scud pattern. And then beneath that, a little size 20 black and silver zebra midge. And he said, you know, here's here's what you want to do. And here's how to read the water. And he's like, you got to look at the river as five little streams. He says, if you try to drink all this water at once, you're going to you're going to drown. You got to look at it as a little section. He says, what size of river did you fish back in Utah? I said, I could jump across it in most places. He's like, all right, well, that's what you're fishing here. You only get to pick a river that is maybe five feet, six feet wide, and you have to fish it. So I did. I picked a spot and I just started picking it apart. And after you stare at a stretch of water for long enough, you start to see the fish. You see where they're at and where they're not at. And I remember we fished together for the next two hours before, you know, he he got to the point where he couldn't, you know, couldn't stand anymore. And I caught probably 15 of the biggest fish I ever caught in my life. I mean, these are big, fat Missouri River rainbows. And it was one of the you know, it was kind of a light bulb going off and I helped him up the hill uh, and I helped him get into his truck. And I, I was like, Mike, man, can I, you know, can I buy you a beer? Can I, you know, how can I thank you? And, and, you know, what he said to me, he's like, just always appreciate those moments you have when when you get to do this. Never seen the guy since he's probably, I don't even, I mean, hopefully he's still alive. I don't know. But uh, that was a game changer because I was doing everything wrong. I was fishing the wrong depth, the wrong type of leader, the wrong flies. And all it takes is one person, right? I mean, we're all, we're all a little uh, hesitant to share our favorite spots or what flies working, but you know, we're going to all be dead at some point and nobody's going to care if you caught more fish than the next guy. Right. So I'm the type of guide on the river. Like if you row over to me and be like, holy shit, like you're, you're catching a lot of fish. What are you using? I'll show you what I'm using and I'll give you a half dozen of those flies, right? There's enough fish in the river for everybody to catch one. And if I can help another person have a good day on the water, well, shit, that karma is going to come back to me at some point, right? With maybe a a 26 inch brown trout that takes me out to backing. And I, you know, that's kind of my, you know, what I think about, you know, that kind of stuff on the Missouri and, that's a long way of answering your question on like, how far do you cast and how far do you, do you not cast? But, um, it, it really is a more about, you know, those, those type of experiences for me than, than, than anything else. Wow. Brad, that is a beautiful story and it's a beautiful philosophy that you have. And it comes from a pretty authentic place and that's a gosh, man. That is a beautiful story. I pre- I'm glad I asked that question. I'm glad you. Oh, I'm glad thanks. that we. I'm glad that you got to share that that story. And uh, yeah, it just it's such a 
wonderful example of the short time that we have and why we go and how beautiful it is to be on the water and why everybody's experience out there can be special. Right. And I think I'd rather help people have those special experiences as well. You know, it's part of the reasons I like talking to folks like you. Um, but wow. Yeah. That is a game changer. I like how he said breaking the river into five little rivers that that's going to stay with me that I will think about that when the next time I'm on a big river and doesn't he have to be like the Missouri's pretty big, but even like the Yakima can get big. You know, Mm -hmm. when, when you're coming from Utah and you're fishing the Weber or the Provo and the biggest river you're going to get on is probably the green, you know, any, the, 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 a river like the, the, the Yakima that I fish with my brother quite a bit, or I used to, uh, that seems big to me when I go fish that even. Uh, so I'll definitely take that away. Holy shit, man. That is a crazy story. I mean, that has to, that changes your life when you hear something like that. Right. I mean, to, to have that experience to go up and totally like out of left field, like, Oh, everything just changed. Like what you said, everything that I thought was important is no longer important. But it's not just that day. I mean, that's just a reminder in life. Like the things we think are important, they're not that important, man. Like spending time with the people you love, being on the water, doing the things you care about when you have the time to do it. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, as I get a little older and I I don't feel like I'm that old yet, but I, you know, part, part of the fun for me, and I don't know how it is for you. I'd be curious to know what you think, Jason, but you know, it's, it's like, if you're excited for a new purchase, if you're buying a new truck or, uh, you know, something new, right. A, some exciting purchase, half of the fun is everything that leads up to when you actually make the purchase, right? Like looking on Craigslist or on classifieds every day, reading all the reviews, deciding what color, you know, picking out, you know, in your head, like what options you want. And then, you know, all of that is so much fun. And then when you finally go and you buy the truck or buy whatever you're going to buy. It's kind of like the game's over and you're like, Oh man. And, and that's kind of how fly fishing is for me. All of that anticipation of, Hey, do we, you know, what am I going to potentially catch today? I'm going to have fun getting ready and, you know, calling your friends to see if they can go and, you know, stopping at the, at the gas station and to buy the beer before you get out to the river, getting everything rigged up. And then finally, you know, you, you finally catch a fish and then you're like, oh, well, all that other shit was just as much fun as actually reeling in this fish and netting it. So that, that's what that gentleman I met, he had all that figured out. And I didn't. I thought the only that you couldn't go out and have fun unless you were being successful. And I was basing my mood and my um, enjoyment of fly fishing on on that. And, and you know, it, it is OK um, I don't want to jump ahead, but one of my critiques of guiding is it is okay to not catch fish. Uh, and that is something that's kind of lost in the guiding community right now. Like people expect to catch fish and they expect to catch a lot of fish. They're paying you to catch fish and, um, it's, it's okay to not catch fish. It's okay to do all that other stuff and then not catch fish because, um, at the end of the day, we may remember, you know, on one hand, the fish that we've caught, like the really, at least for me, like the fish that stand out in in memory, what I remember about those trips is who I was with when I caught the fish. Like, I can't tell you much about the fish, but I can tell you who I was fishing with. 
I can tell you about a fish I caught with Chad or Russ or my friend Jim or, you know, some of my guide buddies when we're, you know, out fishing. I remember those, those days. So it becomes more of an association with, you know, those memories uh, of people, right? Um, I, I can't tell you how many fish I caught that day after I talked to that guy. I don't know how big the biggest one was. I know they were big, but I remember how that guy made me feel. Like he, he made me feel something different. And after that, I was like, man, I've been thinking about this wrong. Like, those are the kind of people you want to, those are the kind of people you want to fish with. Those are the kind of yeah. people you want in, you know, in your circle of friends. Uh, and if they can row all the better, <laughs> I'm still trying to get, I'm still trying to get Chad to row. He's, he's kind of a, you know, he always says his shoulders hurting. He's just full of shit. But, um, you know, and Chad and Russ are two of those kind of guys, right? They, they, they get it. And I've got some friends here in Montana that I fish with who, who get it. And we, we have such a good time when we go out that, um, it makes it all worth it. Thanks for listening to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. You can learn more about some of the topics we discussed in today's episode show notes. For more fly fishing ideas, stories, and artwork, check out my blog and online gallery at wadeoutthere.com. If you want to make Wade Out There a part of your own fly fishing journey, please subscribe and share. Until next time, Wade Out There. <laughs>